0: This sermon audio is presented to you by Pastor Tommy Brandon and Calvary Church of Fort Worth. For more information, visit our website at calvaryftw.com. Well, open your Bible today. I want to talk with you today uh, around a theme, the message that I've entitled The Power of Love. And so I want you to open your Bible with me to the, uh, the epistle of 1 John, and I want to read some scriptures in your hearing, chapter number 3. This is John three sixteen, but it's deeper than the gospel, and so it's in the epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, and if you wouldn't mind, let's stand together, and I'm going to read a passage of scripture And then we're going to pray and I'll let you be seated. And then we'll look at additional uh, scripture reading after you're seated. 1 John chapter number 3. And we're going to add a couple of verses to that. uh, Verse 16. By this we know love. Everybody say love. love. I love the sound of the word. It's very melodious. It's beautiful. Love. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has this world's goods and sees his brothers in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, do not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth." Indeed and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that's on the word. And I pray that you would bless everything that's said that brings honor and glory to you. Lord, let it become transcendent. Lord, let it move beyond time and space. Lord, we tune in, we zero in. We calibrate our hearts and tune to the frequency of heaven. And we ask, Lord, that you will change us with this word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. High five somebody and tell them, get ready for the word of the Lord. If you would, I'd like you to turn back to the gospel of Luke, and I want to read another passage in tandem with this. And it's a little longer reading, so I, I thought I'd let you be seated. Uh, verse number 25 of, of, of chapter number 10 of the gospel of Luke. You have to remember, Luke is a, a very ardent and respected historian. And so when he says certain, that word is a common word that Luke uses, and he's very specific about it. It doesn't mean this is a parable. It doesn't mean it's a story that's just used as a metaphor or as an illustration. He's saying there is a specific notice what he says. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? what is your reading of it? One reason that a Pharisaic lawyer would ask that question is because Jesus was preaching a gospel that was unique. It was a gospel that was different from what they were used to hearing. In those days it was a very legalistic culture as you, most of you, if you've been in Bible studies or small groups or been studying the Bible for any length of time, you know that There were uh, religious parties in Israel that had largely become like what we would have as political parties. One of those was the Pharisees, the other the Sadducees. And so when someone like a lawyer would ask a question that is so obvious, you'd have to understand that everyone in Israel knew what the greatest commandment was. I mean, this is not something that... he's, He's not looking for a specific... Uh, idea from Jesus he's looking for an affirmation that you're right and interestingly enough he gets it he says as he stands up and testing Jesus teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life he said well what have you read in the law what is your reading of it and he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and he said unto him you have answered rightly This is not a bad thing when the creator of the universe says you got it right on. This is a good thing. You said it exactly right. Bingo. Grand prize winner. You get the car. Maybe not that. But anyway, you have said rightly, do this and you will live. But he wanting to justify. This is where the story gets, takes a little bit of a sinister turn. But he wanting to justify. He wasn't satisfied with having correctly answered Jesus' question. When he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what do you read in the scripture? Do what the law says. And he says, well, what I read is that I'm supposed to love God with all my heart. And this is my my adaptation or my translation. Love God with all my heart and then be able to love other people like I love God. Jesus said, bingo. That's the heart of it. That's the crux of the matter. But he wanting to justify himself, and perhaps he was a lawyer, that would be natural, being in, I don't know if there's any attorneys in the room today or not, but you're trained to get into the details, you're, you're trained to get into the, uh, the specifics, making sure that they, lawyers parse words for a living. That's part of what they do to make sure those contracts are exact and make sure those words mean what they say and say what they mean. And, and so he wanting to justify himself says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, well, let me tell you a story that illustrates God's perspective of neighborliness versus your understanding from a legal perspective of being a neighbor. And Jesus said, a certain man. Now we see this is not a fake fable. This is not a story. Luke's saying this actually happened. Jesus said, a certain man. I don't know whether it had been on the front page of the Jerusalem Post or I don't know where the story came from or how Jesus knew it. I don't know. Maybe it happened in the dark and Jesus just knowing everything knew it. But this happened to a man. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 17 mile journey over about 3,300 feet in descending elevation. When you're traveling the road to Jericho and the road to Jerusalem you're either going up or you're going down. There are no in-betweens and it's a notorious pathway filled with robbers. Why did people stake out that road? It's because Jerusalem was the principal commerce center and people went there it was the banking center normally if people had goods or services to sell they went to the largest metropolis in the nation it was the capital city uh, so to speak and so it stands to reason that if you're a robber or a, a criminal that you're going to have your best gain by staying on that road. And so everybody's good with that story as Jesus is telling it. Yeah, yep, they're saying, yeah, a certain man went down from Jericho. Yeah, I heard about that. you hear about it? Yeah, it was on the front page of the paper. And yeah, Jesus is drawing them by telling a story. And, and this man, as he was traveling this descending road, fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And everybody in the crowd is thinking, mm, it can happen to the best of us. I mean... Anybody can happen. It can happen, you know, and and uh, it doesn't surprise me that road is bad. I, he should have had some folks with him, you know, that kind of. Feel and mood would have been with the story or man he's at the wrong time if he was traveling at night he should have had better sense than that come on somebody you know what I'm talking about it's like mm-hmm, they're all leaning in as Jesus is telling the story this lawyer's leaning in as he's telling the story and, and, uh, and they, this poor guy is left a strip naked and left half dead and, and then the story begins to get a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus said and by chance a certain priest came down the road And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. you have to understand something about this priest and this priest is not going up to Jerusalem he's coming down from Jerusalem so he's not going up to do his religious duties because if he were going up to perform his duties because there were 24 courses of priests and they each had a certain schedule of the calendar when they were supposed to be in the temple and on duty and when they were going they couldn't be defiled by anything or they would be disqualified from being able to serve in the temple and so I could get it if the priest is going up to to the temple to serve, it's a big deal he's waited all year for his opportunity part of his livelihood each year annually, part of their budget family wise is being able to do his job and get his portion at the temple and I get all that but that's not the scenario, I've heard this story preached a lot of times where they would say well the priest was going up to Jerusalem and he couldn't be defiled no he's not going up, he's finished his work he's coming down from Jerusalem and going back home Now, the interesting thing about it is he could, if he were defiled on his way home, then it would have cost him his vacation time. Essentially, he would have had to go back to Jerusalem, gone through the ritual cleansing of being being become purified again. He would have had to stood outside the temple with, with common sinners, God forbid, and he would have had to have gone through the ritual cleansing process. So it would have been an extreme inconvenience, but it would not have prohibited him from doing his religious service. It would have affected his Is time off And time off is important If you're in ministry Can I get a minister's amen I'll say amen to that We all need a break And we have to defend that And protect that And part of what we teach leaders All the time Is you have to have a Sabbath And make sure you protect it But then there are some times Where somebody's in a ditch And protocols of all type Go out the window and interestingly enough, Jesus in the story paints this picture of this poor guy who's coming back from a business deal, has money, gets robbed, gets falls into a bad moment of his life, and then the priest comes down who could have done something, should have done something, but whatever his motivation was, he didn't just turn uh, his shoulder, he literally passed on the other side of the road. How many know that there can be some moments in your life that you don't have the luxury of passing on the other side of the road? Because not only do you know what you just did, but God knows what you just did. Right. And then Jesus said, so the priest passes. And then likewise the Levite, when he had arrived at that place, came and looked. Now the Levite at least paused and he looked and maybe he even felt sorry for the guy. But I don't know. We don't know whether he's coming or going. And I, most Levites don't. But anyway, uh, he, he, he's, whether he's coming or going, we don't really understand that based on the story. But for whatever reason, he doesn't make time in his schedule. So we see a failure by the mainstream religious establishment to address the problems of fallen humanity. We see a legal expert who's wanting to understand and Jesus, when he responds correctly, then Jesus takes the opportunity to say, listen, y'all look at this thing through legal eyes. Let me tell you how God looks at this thing. He doesn't look through it through based on what the constitution says or based on what the, the ordinances of the city says. He don't even look at it based on what your religious couturements say or what your prerogatives, your rights or your wrongs of your religious establishment says there are moments in God's mind where somebody has done got hurt and somebody needs to do something. That's right. So, then the story really gets uncomfortable because verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, And everybody would—they would have. There would have been a collective gasp in this in this story in the crowd, because it's one thing to talk with lawyers; it's another thing to talk about priests and Levites. It's another thing to talk about a poor Jewish man that's fallen on hard times. But suddenly Jesus interjects into the story, the word nobody wanted to hear—the word Samaritan. You see. It's not just in America where there are racial divides. And how many believe that it shouldn't be in the church? Can I get an amen, right? We are brothers and sisters. The Bible says that God is made of one blood, all men on the face of the earth. How many believe, that? and this church does, but how many believe the churches of America ought to already look like heaven? Amen. They ought to already look like heaven. That's a fact. But this is not the first culture that has racial division. So now the story becomes racially charged because Jesus interjects into the story a Samaritan. And in just a split second, he's going to make this outcast the hero of the story. Now we're going from being puzzled to downright offended Because he's passing over the lawyer who he's looking in his eye telling the story. He's passing over the priest, the preacher who can preach the paint off the wall. And the Levite who is the usher and the greeter and the deacons and all that. He's passed all of that over. And in this story makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. And he says, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him on the next day. Everybody say he spent the night with him. Have anybody in this room ever been in a bad moment where you didn't just need somebody to give you a helping hand, you needed them to hang around a while? I need a better amen than that because that's true. There are moments when just a hand up won't help. You need somebody to hang out a while, to pitch their tent and hang out with you for a little bit. Cook some biscuits and gravy and say, I know you're suffering right now. I'm going to hang out at least through the night. And, and that's, what the, that's what the Samaritan did. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, two two uh, pieces of money, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and Whatever more you spend, when I come again, somebody say, he will come again. When I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? This is the rhetorical question. So who is really the neighbor, the preacher, the deacon, or the dope dealer? And it probably got quieter in that crowd than it did just in the crowd I just said. Probably got quieter there than it was in this room. Another code way of saying it. Who reflected more the love of God? The one who had all their theology down. The one who had all their service down in the temple. The one who had all their law down. Or the one who just jumped off the horse and climbed down in the mud in the ditch to help? Well, the man had no option. Verse 37, he said, well, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus said, now you really got it right. (laughs) Listen to this. Go and be like a dope dealer. Not really. He didn't tell him to go sell dope. You know what I'm saying? But to that, to him, that Samaritan, the equivalent. When he said go do likewise, it wasn't just go go do like that. No, it was the insult of insults. No wonder they wanted to kill him. No wonder it wouldn't be too long till they would kill him. Right. And isn't it wonderful that shortly after they killed him, he rose from the dead. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Okay, so some of you are thinking this man is crazy. But let me just talk with you about the power of love. Somebody say the power of love. The power of love is the most powerful force in the universe. It is the fundamental building block of everything that involves people. It's a master key. What is a master key? A master key is a key that unlocks not one door, but it unlocks every door. If there's a master key to this campus, it won't just unlock the front door that you came in perhaps when you came into this building. It will unlock every door. We need keys like that in our life. As a church, we need to have master keys. We need to know them, understand them, and know what they'll unlock. Can I tell you that love is a master key that unlocks every door in the arena of the heart. For saint and sinner alike, love works. Somebody say, love works. Amen. Love penetrates. Love examines the heart, not for the purpose of condemning, but to expose us. To reveal us and to woo us out of our hiding places. Love encourages the soul. In my notes this morning, I was adding a few thoughts in my notes this morning. I was thinking about how can I describe love? And and this is how, I, I describe it this way. It's the aloe vera for the burned emotions. Scorched from the fires of life. Scorched from the fires of life. Love builds bridges and tears down walls. (laughs) Love defends the weak and destroys the proud. That's what Jesus was doing in this story. He said the love of God has this mystical and incredible power to destroy some and build up others. To destroy the proud who think they don't need God and they got it all figured out. To bring them to a place of humility, but to those who are downcast and humbled, it will lift them up. The love of God is an amazing thing. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love never fails. It's greater than spiritual gifts. Somebody say amen to that. I've seen people that had more gifts. Listen, they had more gifts than Santa Claus that's a fact but they didn't have any love and Paul writes about that y'all he really does talk about it that you can be the most spiritually astute spiritually tuned in you can prophesy and speak in tongues and you can have all the gifts and I'm not belittling any of them I believe in all of them but I'm just saying you can have all that working but if you're not driven by the greatest force in the universe if you're not then you're like the priest that passes on the other side of the road you're like the Levite that don't have time you're like the lawyer that don't understand that's what happens when you don't mix love even with your giftedness you can sing like a mockingbird preach like a prophet but if it's not driven by love and people know it they smell it you can't fool people they know whether you love them or not because yeah that's right love is everything y'all you say what it's everything If you want to add Christianity into and and boil it down to one common denominator, you know what it would be? It wouldn't be religious regulation. It wouldn't be, are you right? It wouldn't be, have you got all your doctrine figured out? God is bigger than your misunderstanding of his his person. It's okay. God's not threatened. It doesn't change God, the essence of God, or his identity because I misunderstand. But he has used people that don't have a clue, y'all. He has used people frequently and passionately and powerfully that don't have a clue. They can't explain the Roman road, can't explain the Acts, can't explain. No, the Gospels, they're trying. No, God will use people whose hearts tuned to love. Heaven's frequency is love. Yeah. Yeah, so love is everything. And I can say that because 1 John chapter 4 tells us God is love. So I can say it that way. God is everything. In 1985, Huey Lewis and the News recorded a smash hit. For all of you that are not up on your classic rock and roll, and uh, I listened to it this morning as I was getting inspired to preach this sermon, and Huey talks about the power of love. How many have ever heard, how many are... Humble enough to say, yeah, I heard that song. It's a pretty good song. It's still classic rock and roll. I got that station. Yeah. The power of love. And he goes through all kinds of lyrics. I listen to the lyrics, and it's interesting. He goes through all kinds of, that, that love will make you do this and make you do that. And I thought, man, that's right. That's right. I agree with Huey. Love is powerful. But I would add one thing. Today it doesn't seem to be plentiful. I'm talking about the kind of love that God has. The kind that Jesus demonstrated in this passage of Scripture. The kind that John wrote about in both his Gospels and his later epistles. That kind of love, it's powerful. Yes, it is. It's world-changing. It's, it's incredible, but it's not that plentiful. Because it's a love that's sacrificial. God is love. Love is God. And I agree. But you know, our culture has gotten confused They've confused concepts. They've confused love and lust. Can I get a weak amen for that? <laughs> amen. Amen. And you know what? You have to be careful because they can masquerade as the same thing. And you know, we hear, we use words, but they don't always mean the same thing. You know, a young man walk up to a beautiful young lady he's wanting to start a romantic relationship with, and he'll say, I love you. And she'll hear something, and he's saying something else. We confuse love and lust. But here's how you can tell the difference. Love demands to be satisfied. Love says satisfy me. I mean, lust says satisfy me. Lust is all about what I want. Lust is about my preferences. It's about what I like. Love says satisfy me. Love, on the other hand, says I'm going to satisfy you. Can I give you all a a marriage lesson this morning? Okay, I won't go there. There's kids in the room. But let me just say, if you seek to satisfy the person, the spouse that God's put in your life, that's how love works. That's the difference between love and lust. Lust demands to be satisfied. Love seeks to satisfy. Love's desiring and longing to meet needs, to be a help, to support. Lust says it's all about me. Love says it's all about you. Lust is but a fleeting moment. Love is an eternal, unstoppable, invincible force. Love is so powerful that poets have described it with beautiful lyrics and artists have been inspired by it and they write and they paint and they sing songs about it and dreamers imagine it in beautiful shades and tones. Philosophers spend endless hours trying to explain it. But I'll tell you something I have figured out is the devil don't have it, he don't understand it, and he hates it. So if you want to do something to make the devil super ticked off, people talk about spiritual warfare. And, and man, I believe in spiritual warfare. I know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God. to pulling down strongholds. And I I spent a lot of time in my early ministry, listen, fighting a lot of devils. You know, we'd identify the strong man in the area. And and as I've gotten older and gray-headed, I realize most of my time I'm fighting gravity. and I get a (laughs) gray-haired amen. That doesn't mean the demons are not still there. It just means that most of my battles today have to do with gravity. But if you want to really mess with the devil, you really want to pull a strong man down, Turn your back on hate and jealousy and all that kind of stuff that are works of the and start loving folks. Find somebody to love. Find somebody to demonstrate the love of God. I'm not talking about lust. Find somebody to love with the love of God. Find a way and you will turn the table upside down on the devil and tick the devil off. He will hate you because he hates love. Amen. Because he knows how powerful love is. That's pretty good for a young guy like me, honestly. I don't, I'm going to add in my note. That is pretty good right there. Amen. Take a praise break. Amen. That's pretty good. Wiggle a little. Somebody wiggle. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like That's how my praise breaks. I used to shout, you know, and kind of break my hair. Now I just wiggle a little bit. It's like a <laughs> Amen. Amen. Love is the one thing that gives meaning to life and is the fuel, listen, the fuel of God's purpose for our lives. I tell you, I've spent a lot of time working with leaders, helping them understand and how to discern purpose. I'm not sure I've spent enough time helping them love. We can have the best strategies and plans, but I'll tell you the secret sauce of a great church. The secret sauce of a great church is in the loving of that church. When that church loves, 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 man, that is, it don't matter what you label yourself. It doesn't matter the style of worship. It doesn't matter whether you wear heart and Marks or Levi's. It don't matter. But when you are loving, 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 when the love of God is a compelling force, when it's demonstrated in every song, when every breeder at the door is greeting people and they know that they are loved and wanted and welcome, you can't drive people away from that because love works. Hallelujah. It works. Yep. And I'll tell you about the Bible y'all I'll tell you about this scripture You know what it's powerful and How many believe this is the word of God How many believe that How many are thankful for the word of God I believe it I believe every word of it I believe it's all God inspired And God breathed And without error in it's original autographs We say it's original manuscripts I believe that But I'll tell you why it's been the best selling book for 500 years Did you know this book has been the best selling book on the planet For 500 years Did you know that Honestly, I've written a couple of books and if I could have had a bestseller for 5 minutes, it would have changed my life. And the Bible has since Gutenberg's press, the Bible has been the number 1 best-selling book. You google it. The number 1 best-selling book every year. For 500 years you know why it's not because of the genealogies and it ain't because of Leviticus it's because every story in this book has a heartbeat and a throbbing message and that is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life it's the love of God it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance It's because sane or sinner-like, when you open this page of this sacred text, something in your heart begins to tremble because you know that you have just dialed in to heaven's love language right there. And every message, if you'll distill it, if you will get your hermeneutic right, when you properly interpret every passage, the interpretation will say, I love you. In this Good Samaritan story, we see three kinds of love. First of all, we see a love that's sacrificial. We see a love that's sacrificial. Sometimes it's a love that's hard to understand. And I have to tell you, I will be honest with you moms. I think that most of y'all are a little tuned into this more than some of us men. I'm talking about the sacrificial kind of love. Can I get a woman's amen? It's like he don't know a lot about sacrifice. (laughs) You know, it's like he don't know, but I do. I was serving as president of a college out in the Carolinas about 20 years ago, and I always loved to go through battlefields and old memorials and monument areas, and I was walking through old Fort Augusta. Uh, uh, Georgia's an old, it was a colony before it was part of the states, and it was one of the original 13 colonies, and you may have visited there. It's a really cool place on the Savannah River there where there's a church and there was a fort there that was the original settlement uh, before this nation was born, and I was looking through and walking through the cemetery, and I tell you, Pastor, I was gripped by one plot of ground I saw, because I just almost walked right by it. But as I stopped, I looked, and I realized that there was like the whole family. Well, there was a lot of those. They had multiple burial sites and the whole family. But as I began to look, I realized that all the dates on those stones were just a day or two apart. And it caught my attention. I don't know, in those days, these are 1700s, in those days the frontier was a dangerous place, you know what I'm saying? Epidemics and all kinds of pandemic type things were going on, not to mention wars, and it was a difficult type place. So I don't know what the story was, but I know that dad was here to the left, and his was the first grave. Dad died first. And then like two days later, there was a child, and about three days later was another child. And then about four days later was another child. And then finally one more child. And then on this end was mom. And mom was the last to die. Perhaps that could, as best as any illustration I could use, explain the love of God to you. I don't know what was going on in that family. But I'm going to tell you, that little mama would not die until she had finished her service. To her husband and to her children. And she was the last to die. In this story of the Good Samaritan, we see a sacrificial love, a love like that. A love that says, I'm going to hold on till you're gone. I'm going to hold on till you're gone. I'd love to save you. I don't know what the circumstances of that plot was, but I can tell you just reading and looking at the evidence, it appeared as if that mother was the last to die in the family. Dad had already succumbed. The children had succumbed. That's the love. That's a mother's love. That's the love that's sacrificial. That's a love that'll get off your donkey, off your high horse, That's a dog that'll get you off your high horse of I'm a preacher, I'm a priest, I'm a Levite, I'm a deacon, I'm an elder, I'm a whatever. It'll get you off your high horse and down into the ditch with people who are suffering, people who've made mistakes, people who've been at the wrong place at the wrong time, people who've fallen in with the wrong crowd, people who life has hurt. No, that's a love that's sacrificial. The second love I see in this story is it's a love without limits. This, this Clearly this Samaritan Was willing to cross racial boundaries And it's a love that said I'm not Limited by my identity Or their identity I'm not limited In my love by who I am Or who they think they are At this moment none of that matters This person's bleeding and I got a bandage This person is suffering I got Some medicine in my, in my bag Are y'all in the room with me it's a love That goes beyond limits it's a sacrificial Love and a love that goes beyond limits And then thirdly I see that it's a a love that demands expression. It's a love that refuses to be silent. Stand with me, would you? Mother Teresa was asked how she could spend her life attending to the outcast in the leper colonies of Calcutta, the absolute lowest of the low. at a state dinner for heads of state where she was invited, where they wore their fancy outfits and she wore her robe held together by a safety pin. Someone had the audacity of, to ask her how she endured a fruitless life with no success and how she stayed motivated to do what she did. And she said this simply, I did what love demanded. She said, "I was called to minister to Jesus Christ in His many distressing disguises." Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we should ask ourselves in every situation, in every encounter, what does love demand? What does love demand? I went back to graduate school back. It's been several years ago now, and. working on a doctoral program in leadership I had to study the compelling leaders of the 20th century and then I had to choose two of those leaders actually three and then two of them I had to write about one of them I chose was Mother Teresa leaders that had captured my imagination and that I had desired to emulate Mother Teresa was the one that I wrote about and the other was Dr. Martin Luther King one of his books that was a collection of great sermons entitled The Strength to Love perhaps one of the greatest collection of sermons ever cataloged and codified in human history one of those messages was called A Knock at Midnight oh my goodness the brilliance of Dr. King he graduated high school at 16 years old roughly Went to college, earned his Ph.D. by the time he was 26. Brilliant. No matter what your politics or his, it doesn't matter. He had a purpose. And that purpose was synchronized and synthesized with love. It's the thing that I saw that he had in common with Mother Teresa and countless other leaders. As I read this story... That Jesus shared, I not only saw, I was like, okay, I can account for. It. There's the priest, the religious, the Levites, there's the lawyer, there's the Samaritan. Jesus actually makes himself the Samaritan. The, the church, ladies and gentlemen, is not the Good Samaritan in the story. The Good Samaritan in the story is Jesus. So, what kind of humility does it take for him to tell this powerful, gripping story and make himself the hero and the zero? but there's one other character and this is where the church steps in it's the innkeeper it's the innkeeper because here's what happens the good Samaritan rescues the struggling and then brings them to the inn and says to the innkeeper I'm going to stay till they're on their feet or at least through the night and then I'm going to give you the resources you need to continue the care until I come again and I will come again and when I come again I'm going to see how you took care of Boy, how would that change our strategies and our strategic planning sessions if we knew God's evaluation wasn't based on our numerical number, if it wasn't based on our budgets and buildings. What it would it do to us as leaders if we knew that God's evaluation of our ministry was going to be how we took care of those who had been broken and destroyed by life? Well, that'll make your small groups take on a whole new flavor, won't it? That'll take Sunday school, take on a whole new level. That'll take worship to a whole new level. When we realize God's evaluation of us is he says, I'm going to go away. Here's everything that you need to do, the job I've called you to do. But I'm going to come again. And when I come again, I'm going to see how you've done with this person who's fallen. And there, ladies and gentlemen, we have it. But You know, that sounds like a daunting task, but the fact of the matter is we've been well-equipped to do it. It's called the power of love. Everybody in the building can be part of that. Whether you can sing or not, whether you can preach or not, whether you can deek or not, whether you can eld or not, whether you can greet or not, everybody in the room can be part of that process of loving. And there's the moral of the story. Let's bow our heads together. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the word. Today, Lord, this message has been a message to the church. Lord, it's a message that's designed to challenge us to look beyond the surface beyond our particular identity, to look beyond our race, to look beyond our political persuasion and our religious understanding and look farther beyond that and see in the ditch where people have fallen and been broken by life. That's what the gist of this message is. God, I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice will determine today, God, I will be more like you. I will do more like you. I will speak. I will see people differently. God, I pray that you will adjust our perspective, that you will adjust our path. God, that you will tune us into your frequency, God, so that we can see and hear and feel the throbbing message of love. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen. Let everybody say a big amen this morning.